Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 44. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 44. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. Reading that Matthew Lee Anderson article was really helpful for me. I think it gave me, it kind of finally put two things together. One is like we've been looking at some of these notions in evangelical Christianity that are fairly popular and fairly strong, right? Looking at looking at them a bit more intensely, for example, some of them a bit more intensely through Kyle Adelman's Not a Fan. And then this article here is like critiquing uh, Not a Fan and, and a number of books in that um, sort of genre, this what the author called radical, the radical movement or radical Christianity. Um, but his criticism was really reminiscent of the types of criticisms and perspectives that I encountered during graduate school that I was, although I could see the value in them, I was also critical of them. And to be able to put those two things together, this kind of um, more popular presentation and this more academic perspective really has helped me to get a sense of where I stand because it's able, it's, I've, I've kind of had to keep them both in conversation with me as I've been going along. You know, now the, that article, like actually reading that and having that other perspective right in my face has really helped me. I, I'm really glad we did that. And of course, you know, we've discussed maybe needing to get a little deeper into somebody like Chan and somebody like Platt. Now, have you changed your position at all? I think towards the end of the article, you were kind of critical of him. And then I can't remember if while we're recording or in another conversation, you're like, well, maybe I should take that back. I'm not sure. Where where did you end up in your thinking there? That's a good question. I, I've, I've swung back to being, um, I think I've swung back to being more critical. I, I think, I think that. And what again, was the part you were critical of i can't quite remember and i don't yeah well he so this is the very last paragraph i've got it right here in front of me of matthew lee anderson's article in christianity today and he writes um discovering a radical faith may mean revisiting the ways in which faith can take shape in the mundane sans intensifiers it almost certainly means embracing the providence of god in our witness to the world and i think that that Embracing the providence of God, I think I know where he's going there. I think what he's what he's when he's raising the providence of God idea, he's saying, "Hey, you know what? God is out there doing things for people. God is going to connect people with what they need." This is the idea of providence that 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 God is overseeing um, what's going on in the world to good results. And on the one hand, I'm I'm sympathetic with that. On the other hand, um, it was very clear to me that things don't always work out well, number one. And number two, in the situations he's talking about, um, maybe from the perspective of the person that's being hurt, this is somewhat the providence of God, but hopefully not from my perspective. And I don't really think from the perspective of the person that's being hurt. And I think this is actually a big deal. It's a very big deal. And it's a big deal because our personal action in loving and caring for others and, in, and in, in embracing the love of God for ourselves is huge. It is perhaps the most determining factor that I've been hitting on and hitting on and hitting on and hitting on. And when we take it down to the notion of the providence of God, what we're basically saying is, hey, don't worry about this. Settle down. Take it easy. Relax. God's in charge. God's going to make it all happen. And it's kind of like the idea of somebody walks by and they look at this garden and they say, look, you know, somebody's out gardening in their garden and they say to them, what a wonderful garden God has given you. And the person says, yeah, but you should have seen it before I got here. <laughs> that is exactly the point. And I think what tends to happen 
and I, I'll be kind of um, a bit heavy-handed with this, but in my experience, what tends to happen in the academy, so in the university, in a Christian college setting, is there's this big emphasis on the uh, providence of God, sort of like this big evidence of, an emphasis on the sovereignty of God, and it becomes all about God. And I think to myself, well, it, you know, God initiates these things, yes. I mean, I, I would say that I am a Christian because I am in love with God, and, and God initiated that. There's no question in my experience. That's, that's exactly what happened. And it makes sense to me. That's what I think does happen. But for all of that, that does not imply that my response is not truly mine, that it is not something that I can choose not to do. I could have chosen not to do it, and it w- there would have been a cost, which would have been enormous, but I could have done it. And this idea that we're embracing the providence of God, I think, I think really what he should be saying is, you know, again, I would, I would come back and just say it the same way I keep on saying it, you know, being aware that the when we love God, when we are in love with God, that love translates into action, into love in the world around us, into, you know, good things happen, even on scales that may be smaller than what Chan or Platt think are acceptable. And I, you know, I don't think they would find the, I don't think Kyle Eidelman would find the, 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 the Good Samaritan sort of unacceptable or too little, right? But my big beef is that this tends to get put over so it's all about God. You know, and as, as another evangelical friend of mine said, when I do something good, it's God who did it. When I do something crappy, that's my fault. It doesn't work like that. It does not like work like that. We are involved in both. We are responsible for both. And I really worry, particularly coming from an academic context, that this emphasis on the providence of God and you know that the 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 really annoying thing too is that in a certain sense by putting it this way i think he's trying to be he's trying to counter some of the things he's hearing but his use of scripture is a misuse the uh and the reason i say that is the good samaritan only appears once in the gospels it appears in luke and it appears just following jesus spelling out this is the greatest commandment and the second is like it and of course, it comes out of a, uh, a scribe or a lawyer or a legal scholar uh, saying to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And of course, Jesus is on the one hand saying, this is who your neighbor is, this guy dead in the ditch, but look at who you are. You're not to be the Levite. You're not to be the priest. You're actually to be the Samaritan, the outcast, um, you know, um, it, it, within a first century Palestine context uh, for, for uh, Hebrews, um, the Samaritans are, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty low. They're dirt, you know, and here's this Samaritan doing this thing that is right, where these people of elevated status, Levites and priests, fail to do it. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I, I, would, I would accuse him, and I think he stands accused, of misusing scripture. I guess what I'm kind of hearing is, it's the last paragraph of the article that kind of putting it on embracing the providence of God. The rest of the article felt a lot more solid and it kind of feels a little bit maybe to the end, at the end here that he's just kind of putting it all on the providence of God and then wrapping the article up. Yeah. And this whole thing about culture, you know, and he's talking about a culture uh, coming out of, you know, um, a culture as being our artistic and intellectual and, you know, architectural endeavors. And I kind of agree with all of that. And yet the underpinnings of that, are a, a deep, in my mind, and in my experience as a Christian, are a deep love relationship with God, being deeply in love with God. And it's the outflow of that. And it's communicating that love out. And so I, I see a consistency um, in, in what, what he's saying on the one hand is, you've got culture and you've got providence of God. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. You've got the same thing happening in both places. You've got the outworkings of being deeply in love with God. And again, it's not coming back to the right foundation. It's not coming back to the right origin that is, I think, going to cause problems. I think he's got a different set of problems. And maybe they're not as insurmountable or problematic. But I think he's still got problems because he's not starting in the right place. 
But I think this touches on a couple things that I'm really interested in <laughs> that, I've been, that I've actually been thinking about. And I don't know how far. We'll get as far as we can today. The notion of being deeply in love with God. I, your, your description and how you explain that each time we talk, it's kind of been bouncing around in my head <laughs> in different ways of like, I don't know if I totally buy that. I don't know if I <laughs> totally get it. So um, I'd like to explore... What does that mean? What does that look like? I think there's so many different aspects of love from the complete infatuation, just head over heels, oh my gosh, I can't sleep because I can't stop thinking about this person, to Mm -hmm. this person's bugging the crap out of me, and I love them, and I'm going to do this for them, but man... I don't feel like doing it whatsoever, but I'm doing it out of love. So I think there's a lot of different dimensions. So that's one thing. The other thing I've I've also been kind of bouncing around in my head is this notion of the greatest commandment, which we keep coming back to. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's some also some irony in that, in that I feel like in earlier discussions we've said that love can't be commanded, and yet we're saying, well, the Bible says this is the greatest commandment. And the commandment is to love, and yet we're saying you can't command... I've understood some of our previous conversations to say you can't command love. Now, so I'll leave that dangling. So I've left two things dangling. The third thing here, reading that article, I found a cheap copy of Crazy Love because I didn't want to pay full price because I'm cheap that way. And (laughs) (laughs) started flipping through it. And so as I'm flipping through it, I read, I don't know, maybe the first quarter of it. I came to a section, and I read it, and I was like, if this isn't poking the bear, I don't know what is when it comes to Greg. So there's (laughs) – I know you don't have a copy of the book yet. but No, it's okay. And I'm on – I'm in the the 2008 version on page 61. I think this is a fascinating – let's start here and then see where we get. So (laughs) page 61, here's the quote. So basically the the subheading of this section is, do I have a choice? And I'm quoting this whole thing. And this is Chan speaking, I guess. While I was speaking to some college students recently, an interesting twist on the contrast between our unresponsiveness and God's greatest desire for us came up. One student asked, why would a loving God force me to love him? It seemed like a weird question. When I asked the student to clarify what he meant, he responded that God threatens me with hell and punishment if I don't begin a relationship with him. And I don't know if the tie-in here is to the greatest commandment or not. I would need to work backwards, but I'm wondering if it does. The easy retort to that statement is that God doesn't force us to love him. It's our choice. And this is where I think things get a little weird. Mm -hmm. But there was a deeper issue going on, and I wasn't sure how to answer it in the moment. Now that I've had time to think about it, I would tell the student that if God is truly the greatest good on this earth, would he be loving us if he didn't draw us toward him, toward what is best for us, even if that happens to be himself? Doesn't his courting, luring, pushing, calling, and even threatening demonstrate his love? That's the part that seems kind of funny to me. If he didn't mm-hmm. do all of that, wouldn't he be? Wouldn't we accuse him of being unloving in the end when all things are revealed? If someone asked you what the greatest good on this earth is, what would you say? An epic surf session, financial security, health, meaningful, trusting re- friendships, intimacy with your spouse, knowing that you belong? The greatest good on this earth is God, period. God's one goal for us is himself. And then he goes on a little bit more. And this might be taking us in a whole other direction, but I underlined it because it something just didn't seem... It, it seemed like more kind of Christian mumbo-jumbo. Our love for him always comes out of his love for us. Do you love this God who is everything, or do you love everything he gives you? Do you really know and believe that God loves you individually and personally and intimately? Do you see him as Abba Father? That's kind of the end of it. Hmm. So which part did you think was going to particularly be the... <laughs> the, the... Well, I don't know. I guess the whole question about commanding love. Yeah. And then this... Doesn't his courting, luring, pushing, calling, and even threatening demonstrate his love? That just, something about that just seems really weird to me. The fact that someone's threatening me means that they love me, that just seems really kind of twisted, but maybe, I don't know. Yeah. 
Okay, no, that's good. So um, anyway, I thought it was gonna, I thought it was going to be more inflammatory than maybe it was. But maybe, but uh, granted, we're going to read the whole book eventually. But what, <laughs> true. What, what, what did you think of that? Um. Well, I, I make one sort of little um, caveat in that, that I might skip around a lot here because I think we're kind of getting into both a, a different. We're, we're kind of you know going through this narrow opening into this huge, vast sort of cavern of like this concept of love and and what it means and so just kind of to yeah say that we i might skip around a lot here because i'm not particularly prepared for any one thing but i guess what struck me first of all is i think that what he's saying it's often strange to me when these guys uh guys like platt and guys like uh idleman the, typically what I'm accustomed to reading is I'm accustomed to reading them quoting scripture, whether I like how they've done it, whether I think they've quoted or misquoted is another issue, but I'm not typically accustomed to them talking about a lot of things about their relationship with God from their life, their lives. And so what I would have liked in this, and maybe Platt brought this, is going to bring this out later in the book when you haven't got there yet. It's Chan. Chan, pardon me. Um, is what that what 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 does inviting and wooing and what what does all this look like in his life, or, or if you're gonna talk about it, can you put it in a context where okay, this is how I see it happening in in the Bible, in Scripture, and because the threatening part I think everybody gets, the other parts are wishy washy, they don't really kind of uh, like I, I I for example I can think of things in my life. God has been inviting me, God has been wooing me, God has won me over. And I don't see very much in terms of threatening in my life. And I could bring out those stories and they could probably clarify this, but I don't know that that's the time. This is the time to do that. I would say my most basic response is the idea of threatening somebody in relation to, in relation to love is completely contradictory. It's counterproductive. I don't think it does anything. I think, um, you know, to to say that there are you know, in most areas of life, to say that there are consequences, if you drive too fast, you or someone else could get hurt, is understandable. When you're talking about a relationship with God and you're talking about consequences, you're still on the same kettle of fish because the consequences are consequences that God, depending upon how you read this, uh, are consequences that God lays on us. You can, you can choose to love me or not, but if you don't, you're going to hell. Oh, Oh, well, you know, and we're back to this kind of um, Christianity as being about reward and punishment. We're back to page 21 on Kyle Adelman's not a fan. And I totally disagree with that. I don't think that's what's happening. And I think the way that the student framed it is, a, is, a, is an interesting way of framing it, though I think it's inaccurate. Can you read me that part again? Can you read me what the student's question was? Why would a loving God force me to love him? It seemed like a weird question. When I asked the student to clarify what he meant, he responded that God threatens me with hell and punishment if I don't begin a relationship with him. And I guess, I guess that, that very kind of notion is something that I think Christians really need to take a close look at. Is God really saying, um, I'm going to punish you if you choose not to have a relationship with me? And, and of course, my perspective on hell from some of my readings is that, that, that hell... Um, is not, uh, with relationship to human beings, hell is not a place. Hell is a result. This idea of hell then is annihilation for human beings. For angelic beings, that's a bit different. And I think the, the textual support for hell as being this actual lake of fire that humans go to and that are, is part of, uh, you know, what we can expect at the end of our existence if we don't you know, form a relationship with God, um, I think is inaccurate. And we could kind of get, get into that. And there's a whole bunch of stuff we could look at. And I know there's, there are some references in the Gospels. Even Jesus makes some comments, obviously, about hell. And yet, when we look at it more closely, I think we have two different scenarios going on. One for angelic beings who have, you know, uh, those who have been in the presence of God and, and said, you know, not only... No, I, I'm not interested, but I'm going to fight you. Um, and human beings who are in a very different situation have nowhere near that level of understanding or authority or power. 
So I think that's part of the problem, and I think we need to address that. Yes, it doesn't make sense that God's going to punish us, but it does make sense, for example, if, if, you, if God says, listen, I'm, I want to try and have a relationship with you, and we can just pretend that everything about that process of trying to elicit the relationship is, is something that, you know, if we were to sort of, at the end of our days, look back on it, we could say, yeah, okay, I could see some traces of that, and I think God acted in a good way. I chose no. I think what's going to happen is there's no relationship. If there's no relationship and God, you know, endures forever, I'm not going to endure. I'm gone. I'm dead. I'm, this, it is like, as the text says, the second death. But what about back to this notion that, that the greatest commandment is to love? Yeah, well, I think that's, a, that's another problem, too, is that, you see, <laughs> instead of trying to define the terms, what we try to do is we work with terms that don't work, <laughs> and we try to make them work. And this is the problem. So on the one hand, I've addressed the hell issue. I think the hell issue is very definitely, A, it doesn't work. When you look at it like this, I think that student's question is excellent, right? But I think textually, what we see happening is we see annihilation. Hell is a result and not a place, not for human beings. It is people not choosing God and therefore people not being with God. So you're saying it, it's a result of a decision. I don't I don't I guess I'm, it feels like splitting hairs. It's like, well... If the result of a decision is you get something, if you decide one way, you get you get something you don't that's very unpleasant. I would equate something very unpleasant with a punishment. So yeah, if you're not choosing it, you you're getting the bad stuff. You're getting punished. Well, so it is a punishment. Yeah, I, I guess so. But compared with some sort of idea of unending torture, um, death is death is a death is is a much better alternative, right? So I guess what I'm trying to contrast is hell as unending, unending, unending torture versus hell as uh, annihilation. What's the difference? Huge. Like, would you like to be tortured endlessly or would you rather just not exist? I mean, I would rather not exist. Like if, if I, it's kind of like if I... Oh, so annihilation is elimination? Like you seek to exist anymore? Yeah. No consciousness, you're gone. You're done. You're, you're over. You know, it's like I see I've got a broken leg. There are three wolves coming at me. I've got one bullet left. Where am I going to put it? Well, I'm going to put it in my own head <laughs> because I'm not going to get eaten. <laughs> that's, not, that's not pleasant. Those guys are nasty, you know? So that's kind of – that's the comparison. If I have to make that call, that's the call I would make. And, and uh, yeah, I, I suppose we could see that as punishment. I would also see that as like the, 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 the logical consequence of not choosing a relationship is not being in relationship. It's not getting punished. Did you follow me there? No. The logical consequence of saying, you know, I don't want to um, go out with this girl is you don't go out with this girl. Not, you know, she or her dad or her brothers comes and beats you up until you go out with her. That's not a logical consequence. The logical consequence of choosing not to be in relationship with, with someone or something is that that relationship doesn't happen. Never happens. Right. But part of what it is to continue to exist is to be in relationship with God. Existence is predicated on relationship with God. If you don't have that, you cannot continue to exist. If you say to, your, you know, if, if you say to God, like, talk to the hand, speak to the hand, God, fine, God will speak to the hand. But at the end of the day, you're on your own. And on your own means you're, you're, you've got nothing. You know, it's maybe I would come back to the Christian notion that God is the sustainer of life. You know, and choosing not to be with God is choosing not life. Literally, at the end of the day, that is the consequence. But it's not the idea that, hey, listen, if you don't choose me, I'm sending you to unending torment for all of eternity. That's so subtle. Like, that is not a logical consequence. That, that is a, a sadistic um, notion, you know? Love me or I'll torture you forever. Like, that, th those two things don't go together. Or they do in a, in a very, very broken, twisted world, right? Where, again, it's fear-based. But God says, no, 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 it's not about fear, it's about love. So... That's how I would – so there are two parts to the problem. One is this issue of hell. The other is the command to love. So on the hell thing, I would say it's annihilation. It's not unending torture. And the reality is if God is the sustainer of, of existence, to be at a distance from God is to be – is not to exist. It's simply to be 
in a, in a state where existence is impossible because I can't foster my own existence. I can't keep myself alive. I'm sustained and I live out of the creative effort of God. And I don't, I don't sort of mean that in the sort of sense of like every single day. I think God has set, set things in motion, but I think what's going to happen when God's kingdom comes in its full realized state is those things will be stripped away and it will be, you know, the presence of God directly that maintains human existence. And only those who've chosen that relationship, God will not force it upon anyone. But if you've chosen not to have it, you've chosen to put yourself at such a distance that no existence is possible for you. The other part, I guess, the notion about um, commanding love is that um, the greatest commandment, I mean, a lot of that is coming out of Deuteronomy, right? And um, like, for example, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And this command is being given to the Israelites. It's being, being given specifically to people who have experienced the presence of God, who have experienced the care and the love of God. And I guess the best way to describe my perspective would be following from, I guess, one of my favorite uh, philosophers and thinkers. He describes the commandment to love as a poetic command. Not like poetry, but like this, um, it's not a literal command to you or me, but it is a command, the command of love to the lover, towards the beloved. In other words, the command to love is kind of like the command that you have that exists for you implicitly every day when, for example, you're out in the park and Ethan's on the monkey bars, and he drops, and you hear him make a noise that somewhere inside of you, you know, is like, I'm really hurt. Not just the, you know, some frustration or whatever, but I'm really hurt. And of course, what that does is it, it literally commands you. You are literally drawn out of whatever you are doing. All of your other priorities cease to be a priority. And you go to Ethan. You figure out what's happened and what's wrong and what you can do. So in other words, it's not the idea that, like, I don't believe that love can be commanded. I believe that love is a free gift. But I believe this, well, yeah. The, well, the first thing that jumps out at me, the way you, you laid it out there, which I had never understood before, was when I hear when I hear you read, you know, this is the greatest commandment, I hear it as, you know, this is the most important thing that you must do. It sounds like what you're saying, though, is the the context of what he's saying here is there were a whole bunch of commandments in the Old Testament, and Jesus is referring to those to that whole array of commandments and saying, well, of all those old commandments, this is actually the most important one. Is that what you're saying? Um, I think I'm saying both. But I'm really sort of saying it as the idea of this as being a command is really sort of a reminder about a state of mind or a state of relationship we are supposed to be inhabiting. We are supposed to allow ourselves. And of course, if you come to this without any background, um, you, you can't read it the right way because nobody who was hearing this came without the background of who God was, what God had done, and how much evidence there was that this was true. They knew who God was. Their entire history is filled with events, you know, from the patriarchs to the exodus to the taking of the land, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera that all together point or provide evidence to say God is real, God cares for us, God has watched over us, 
And what it's basically saying is your initial orientation, your orientation as people who have experienced this, who have lived with this, who have this as, you know, the actions of God as, as things you can remember perhaps, and you've heard your parents and your grandparents tell you about, are people who are already in a position of loving God, of being in love with God, that this is a pre-existing sort of state for you. So let that love be a commandment to you, is basically what Jesus is doing. Wow, that's to- and so that strikes me as totally different than uh, out of the blue. By the way, the, the the greatest commandment is that you love the love God and love your neighbor. And so someone sitting there says, oh, wow, I haven't been doing that. Okay, I, it's been commanded by Jesus. Now I need to start doing it. That's not, you're, you're advocating that, that is not what's going on here. No way. No way. And I, I, th- I would advocate for that that doesn't work. I would say that if somebody's hearing that for the first time, they would say, I would, what I would suggest to them if they were to say, you know, what do you think I should do with this? Or what, 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 how does this work? I would say, well, I mean, I think you've got to kind of make sense of this. And I would go through the same process. You've got to get up, get up to speed with those ancient hearers and, and the ancient audience that would, this would have been directed to. Who is this God? Do you know who this God is? What has this God done? What is the relationship? You know, what is, how has God acted? And, and what evidence do you have of this? You know, how important is that to you? Somebody might say, I, I would think this would be weird, but somebody might say, I don't need any evidence. I'm willing to just believe it based on what's in the Bible. Okay. Me, personally, I'm not. <laughs> and I didn't, and I don't. But, um, you know, I, I think, but I, I think that the, it's extremely important that we not approach this fresh and think that we can approach it right if we are approaching it fresh because we can't. And by fresh, you, I think what you're almost saying is surface. Yeah. Or like for the first time, or I've just heard this, or I have no context because these words are being directed to people who are rich with context of God, rich with context of God's love, who should be richly, deeply aware that God is, a exists, B has a special relationship with Israel, C has delivered Israel on numerous times, D has done numerous things in there. Like, I'm sure that there are things that are not recorded, you know, that, that, that maybe were, you know, different small communities could point to and say, you know, this happened and that happened and we were praying to God as a, and as a result, we believe that this happened. And they could point to that. And, you know, you or I might, might not see it that way. That's not the point. The point is not that they have foolproof Evans, the, 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 the point is that there is something sufficient for them to say, yeah, this God's around, this God cares for us, and, and we, our lives have been changed and transformed through this, and we have a relationship with this God, and, and yeah, you know, if I was to put a word to it, the best word would be love. That's who these people are that are then hearing this, the command to love. You know, you, will, you already love. You already have a good enough reason to love. You already should be in love or are in love. Or you are in love. Let that love be felt. Let that love motivate you. Let that love be the guiding force in how you live. That's such a different orientation. I I feel like I just need to think about it a lot longer. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let some of it sink in. I hope I've, you know... uh, I've tried with this a couple of times to kind of express this and, um, you know, to different people. And, and it's, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a tough one until you put yourself in the position of thinking about it in the context of an existing love relationship. So if you think about it in relationship to your spouse or to your children or to your parents or to someone that you can identify, yes, I have a love relationship with this person. And you can say, you know, what would it mean? What is the nature of my response towards that person when they call to me at various different times. And I think about it most with my kids because my kids are the ones who are most likely to call at me, call upon me at times when I do not want to answer. You know, I'm thinking when they're little and they're still nursing and I was getting up and bringing them to with our elder daughter. I got up and brought her to my wife and, and, um, 
You know, if that's two or three times a night, I'm up two or three times a night. And you better believe I didn't want to get up the first time, let alone the second or third time. And I don't think it's down to this kind of act of the will. I just don't think that. I think that I am in a love relationship with that little girl or that, you know, you with that little boy. And um, we act on their behalf. We act for them even when we don't want to, when it's like, this is so inconvenient. But isn't that an act of the will? Isn't, well, I don't... Isn't some think of that so. discipline? Isn't some of that just like, you know what, this is just the right thing to do. I got to do this. Well, I th- you just do it. I think the will is involved, but but I don't think it's down to it's, you know, it's the right thing to do. Like I think at the end of the day, we don't even examine some of that sometimes. You know. Also, oh, I'm not it's not like, well, should I get up or not? Mm, well, it's the right thing to do, so I will. Are you saying yeah. it's more of just a you just do it. Yeah, you just you just do it. And I think the will is involved, right? It's not and I guess this also comes back down to this idea of whether love is a feeling or whether love is more than that. And I would say that love is a feeling, love is also much more than that. And love uh changes over time. You know, it becomes something different. Um and uh, well, it's it's kind of both, right? Like for example, if you watch a movie and you watch a particularly poignant scene and you see somebody loving somebody else and you were filled with that sense of love, what just happened there? I mean, were you literally in a position where, is that, is that your feeling? It kind of is. I mean, you know, you are you and you're experiencing that. But it's kind of not, right? Because it wasn't evoked through something real. It was evoked, it was this kind of, uh, memory, if you like, this um, something deeply within you, in your skin, in your existence, that prompted you to recall in a very emotive way something of a relationship where somebody was valued or you valued somebody. And that worked out in terms of some action that you would say is love. So I think that, you know, we can watch movies, we can go to plays. People can perform, you know, for us and we can be um, kind of feeling that again. And I think what happens over time, one of my favorite uh, philosophers talks about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here. I'm going to read you something from my thesis and it's about the idea of inspiration. And it's in a Christian context, but it's not about, say, the Holy Spirit inspiring people who write scripture. It's about us being inspired by our contact with God. And I'm using this particularly in a context where there's a way of thinking about interpreting scripture. It's called performance interpretation. And it really thinks about the biblical text as like a Shakespearean play and something that Christians do that's unique to being a follower, if you like, of Christ is that We kind of take this on. I don't become like John or Peter. I don't take on a role. But the outworking of this is like allowing the inspiration, allowing the creative passion and the the love, the the passion of being in love, I would say, to, to creatively motivate me to engage with my world in a way that resembles the way that Jesus lived and demonstrated love in the Gospels. Let me just read this one section to you. So while experiences of God's love fade as emotions, inspiration is rather a feeling that, like poetic feelings, attunes us to the otherwise inaccessible in order to create a picture of a new reality. Poetic feelings is like this idea of you're watching a film, or you're watching a play and there's a scene that prompts in you a feeling of just love or compassion or um, something like that. It's not something you're experiencing, but it's, it's there and it's prompting and it's kind of grabbing hold of that. Similarly, where inspiration is experienced as feeling, it is received as a mood. And this idea of mood is something lasting. It's like a kitchen where 
no one's cooking. But in this kitchen, we have very often made dishes of a certain type with certain spices. And you can still smell those spices even though no, there's no food around and no, no one's cooking. So this is the type of thing that I'm talking about when I'm talking about love and its power and its durability. On the one hand, I have direct experiences of, that I, Greg, can point to in my life that deal with my relationship, that are the basis for my relationship with God, that prompt these feelings of being in love. These feelings, if you like, are in some senses, the word I've used here is poetic feelings. They're re-evoked through similar situations. I kind of, you know, the actual feeling, the actual event for me, I mean, I can point back and I'm looking at, you know, 14 years ago, uh, 17 years ago for some of these events. And yet they keep being brought back to me through similar encounters, similar situations. And through these kind of poetic feelings, by this being brought back to me, it's attuning me to things that I wouldn't ordinarily be attuned to. And it's allowing me to reconceptualize the world around me in light of those experiences that are still real. They're distant in the past. But I'm having some of those feelings brought back to me. And that, that sense of recurring and coming back to in terms of the feelings is a mood. It's a mood that kind of hangs over me like the scent of certain spices that are used again and again in a kitchen. Even though, to use my metaphor, there's been no cooking in my kitchen, the cooking is like the exact events that took place between me and God for years and years and years. But that kitchen still reminds me every time I go in it Every time it's called to my memory through similar situations in my world, I watch a film, I hear somebody's story, I I experience an event, which isn't me and God, but it's something that draws that back. Does that make any sense? A little bit. Uh, What's interesting is that one word, inspiration, triggers me. It triggers me in the sense that a lot of my Christian experience has been around this notion of, well, it feels like it's been at extremes. Mm. So the whole word, the word inspiration, I'm very suspicious of and very, I've been trained to be suspicious of, and I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. So the the sense that on the one extreme, it's the worship band has played all the right songs and the pastor has preached, has said all the right things. And now I'm quote inspired to go live for God, or I'm inspired to go love my neighbor. And I'm, <laughs> I've been emotionally manipulated into this state of like euphoria ah. that I would kind of, that I would equate with inspire inspired. And, and so there's that extreme of like, Oh, I'm totally inspired to go, you know, quote live for God this week. You know, wasn't that a, as you're leaving the church, wasn't that such a wonderful service? I feel so inspired to go live for God now, which seems totally temporary, contrived, uh, not going to last very long. Right. You know, come Monday morning about nine o'clock after you've been cut off in traffic and had to deal with that unpleasant coworker, <laughs> that inspiration, it's like so far gone. You're just like, you know, it's gone. No more inspiration. On the other hand, on the other extreme, I've also heard way too many messages about how it doesn't come down to being inspired. I mean, you know, you don't have to be inspired to take out the trash. You're not going to be inspired. You know, you just just got to take out the trash. You, you know, I don't know what's so funny, but uh, so but it's that. this notion that 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 it's an act of the will and it's discipline and it's it's uh our own brute force that that keeps us moving forward, not sitting around trying to be inspired or waiting for the inspiration to come. Heck, if we waited for the inspiration to come, we'd never get anything done. So that word inspired just feels kind of suspect to me. I love this. I've probably glommed, I probably made a mountain out of a molehill there, but no, you're asking for my reaction. I sort of get it. I'm sort of getting hung up on that notion of being inspired. Well, that's really cool. I, I I do like what you said though. That uh, what did you say? It's 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 temporary. Yeah, it's just an emotional high. It's this big shot in the arm. It's like ah, oh, I feel so inspired. Yeah. And then twenty four hours later, you're like, 
Wait, or it's like uh, maybe another example would be like, I love going on long vacations and getting away from my work and my routine. And, you know, usually and usually it takes like two or three days to kind of completely flush regular life out of my system. Mm. And I'll be sitting, uh, you know, on a lake or at a stream in a cabin or something and just feel inspired. You know, when I get home, I'm going to live differently and I'll have my journal out there and I'll make these lists of all the different ways I'm going to live more effectively and my life is going to be more satisfying and my relationships are going to be better. And, you know, then I might feel that way the rest of the week. And, and then, you know, within a day of getting home or a day of going back to work, it's gone. It's history. And so I've kind of come not to completely trust or want to hang too much on those experiences because it's totally disappointing when they come crashing to the ground. Oh, right. Well, that's definitely... Uh... So that may not mean what you mean by inspired, but that's <laughs> well, that's some of what I bring to those word to that, to that word. Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, when I'm bringing this up, what I'm thinking about in terms of inspiration is something that comes out of being in a love relationship, and it is essentially a way of communicating how that love does not is not. A mere oh. emotion. It is not something that will is merely a feeling that will fade, but it is a reality that continues as as what? Not sort of as emotion, but as I guess if I had to come down to it, John, I would say the inspiration is the link, the missing link between love as desire and the actions that come out of it as the will. Well, and I, I think too, as you're talking, I'm realizing there are different degrees of inspiration and different I think I'm bringing some really negative meanings, but as you're talking, I'm thinking, yeah, in a in a love relationship, I have been quote inspired to be a better person, to give more, to and not inspired in the like super heightened emotional state, but just kind of at a more centered. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I want to. I want to strive to do more in this area, or I want to try to give more. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, and it, I, I guess inspiration for me is never sort of a, an original, an initial sort of response. It's not, you know, the idea is not to be inspired for God. The idea So it's is, a byproduct of something else? Yeah, it's something that sort of comes after. It's sort of, a, it's like copper once it gets a patina on it. It's still copper, but it looks different. You know, it's got that kind of greeny, turquoisey sort of thing on it. And it responds different in the, in the elements. And, and this is, I guess, for me, what happens out of being in love with God, the ultimate kind of outworking of that is that there is a, there is a sort of inspiration, which is um, a vision, a way of seeing the world that develops in parallel with my sort of reality-focused way, where, though, to, see, to be inspired and to see the world through the eyes of inspiration is to see what, what could be, what best might be. And it's to see it on the basis of what it is to have experienced that in my own life. Who I might be and who I best can be, I have actually experienced through being loved by God through being understood more profoundly than I understand myself, being loved more deeply than I love myself. And so it is the exact duplication in a creative way coming out of me with all of the interesting ways that I kind of, you know, can approach something that is informed by that love. And that's, that's kind of what that is. And then, of course, the, the idea that it's not all about a feeling, and yet the kind of the feeling of that, that that being in love with God is is reevoked. It's reevoked poetically through other situations, movies, films, whatever. And um, ultimately, it, it sort of lingers as this this kind of mood, this kind of you know, these scents and spices that that are just present in this kind of low level way. You know, sometimes it peaks, but some it doesn't often. Yeah, I think I'd like to come back to this more. I'm thinking, we don't have time for it today, but I'm mm-hmm. thinking of uh, The Road Less Traveled, M. Scott Peck. 
Yeah. And he has a huge section, like, I don't know, a third or a quarter of his book on love. Mm-hmm. And his present, like, whenever I hear your presentation of what love is, it it connotes warmth and deep, I don't know, longing, satisfaction, lots of good things. When I read his notion of love, it's very, I don't know, clinical, hard, uh, an act of the will. Uh, he even has a subheading and part of the section that says, you know, love is not a feeling. Yeah. Well, the topic of love is... It's definitely complex. In fact, what's funny, maybe this is a good way to close it out. I'm on page 81 of The Road Less Travel. He says, one, re- one result of the mysterious nature of love is that no one has ever, to my knowledge, arrived at a truly satisfactory definition of love. Mm-hmm. So, maybe you have. <laughs> I don't know if it's satisfactory. <laughs> or maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a huge, I mean, it's definitely a very, very huge topic. Yeah. Well, I, I think he's a great one to look at, and he's a great one for me to try to bounce some of my thoughts off of because he's really specific. If you go down, I'm, I'm in the same, on the same page in the last sentence of that same paragraph. I define love thus, the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. And a big focus on the will, too. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, this, this would be great. I'm, I'm already reading this, and I'm kind of eager to kind of take the discussion there. Okay. Well, maybe that's where we'll go next time or maybe not. Who knows? Well, the spooky music means only one thing. This episode's over, but another one's on the way. Thanks for listening to Untangling Christianity. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment at our website untanglingchristianity.com slash 44 If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com And if you're looking for just one more way to give feedback on the podcast, we're running a survey, untanglingchristianity.com slash survey. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thank him for his generosity by supporting him at his website. Tune in next week for a new episode.